Today we are going to be finishing John chapter 8. We're going to be studying together from verse 31 through to the end of verse 59, hopefully. Brief background for you to bring you up to date. We're still at the Feast of Booths, so we've just encountered Jesus by these four great torches, declaring to everybody that, look, I am the light of the world and all that that means, and both to the ancestors but also to the looking forward to Jesus himself. He's declaring, look, I am the light of the world, I am him. And he's talking to them. And in verse 30, it seems to have gone well because he says, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. And so you assume that's great. You know, it, it would appear that people have become Christians. But then verse 31 happens and it runs to the end of the chapter. So let's read this together. And if you'd like a title for this morning's message, I've called it True Freedom. So Jesus said to these Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father and you do what you have heard from my father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children you would be doing what Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing what your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, But he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you don't hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. 
but you've not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Let's pray. Well, Lord, as we gather around your word, around the truth, your truth can and does bring life. So, Lord, would your truth have its way in our midst today? Lord, for me as I preach, for these guys as they listen, ultimately we, we all sit under your word, we all sit under your instruction, your voice, so would we hear your voice? Or would our lives be changed in Jesus' name? Amen. On July the 24th, 2002, Randy Fogel went to work, expecting an ordinary day at the office. For his office was a dank subterranean labyrinth, 240 feet below ground, where the only light comes from flickering helmet lamps, and a mistake can cost you your life. But Randy, having been a coal miner for 20 years, took all such challenges in his stride. He had a reputation for toughness, and yet little did Randy know how his toughness was about to be tested to the limit. His ordinary day's work was interrupted at about 9 o'clock in the evening by a frantic voice crackling over his radio. We hit water. Get out, it said. Randy's fellow miners had accidentally drilled through into an adjacent flooded mine. The miners scrambled to escape doubled over as they ran to avoid the low ceilings as millions of gallons of water came swirling and rushing about their ankles. One team escaped, but Randy's team did not. Cut off from their only exits by flooded corridors, the nine men found themselves trapped in a chamber only four feet deep and 18 feet wide, filled nearly to the top with frigid 12-degree water. These men had no shortage of strength or courage, They were fighters and survivors, hard men who faced danger on a daily basis. Randy had played football in high school. His brother recollected one time they'd been deer hunting and Randy had opted not to wear gloves even though it was five below zero. That's the kind of man he was. If anyone could find a way out of this mess, it was Randy and his fellow miners. It didn't take long, however, for the terrible truth to become clear. Randy was helpless. As the minutes turned to hours and the hours turned to days, the water wasn't receding. By day three, hypothermia and despair were setting in and there was nothing they could do in and of their own strength. Resourcefulness and toughness weren't enough to save them. All they could do was hope and pray for rescue. Mercifully, Randy and his companion's story made front-page headlines and gripped the nation. And accordingly, a rescue effort began immediately. Rescue workers, fellow miners, families and friends worked out and prayed day and night to save the lives of these brave men. It was slow, tiring and difficult work, but nothing could shake their determination. They began by running a pipe into the subterranean chamber, pumping in hot air, a move that kept Randy and his friends alive. When the miners banged on the pipe, it gave their rescuers the first affirmation that they were still alive and fueled their determination. 
after 77 hours of huddling in the frigid darkness, praying and thinking about his loved ones, Randy Fogel was finally raised to the surface in a yellow rescue cage. His eight companions followed. Thanks to the devoted work of their rescuers, all nine of them survived with strong spirits and only minor injuries. They had stared death in the face and then come back to tell their story. You know, for all of us, there is something, I think, compelling and motivating about freedom, isn't there? We hear stories like that and we just think, yeah, he was saved. That guy was helpless and his companions were, were helpless, but the rescuers came in after him and they saved this guy and this guy was then completely free. And there's something in our spirits that we just think, that is, that is just great. And so we hear about nations that are struggling under an oppressive ruler. And then we hear of them overturning the regime and being freed from the regime. And we're watching the telly and just thinking, that's right, that's good. They're completely free. Or we watch films like Braveheart, quality film. And we all watch it just for the end bit. I mean, it's difficult for me, being English, and to watch such heretical truth, because obviously it can't be true. What I've discovered in, in all the films of late, of historical nature, um, the, the English are always the bad guys. And, and now I've discovered that that is, that is indeed historical. So that's a shame. I just thought it was make-believe. Oh, we really were horrendously bad. But, but we all like this, this moment in Braveheart where right at the end the English have, have William Wallace and they want, to hung, they want to hang him, they want to draw and quarter him. And just as they're about to stretch him and then put the dagger in and start to chop him into four pieces and then send it to the four corners of, of, of Britain, they say to him, well, if you will renounce this, we will, we will spare you. It will be a quicker death. How kind. And he says, freedom. And every man watching that goes, yes. Admittedly, you have to now be chopped into four, but yes. That was so cool. Because there is freedom. There is something in our spirits that just loves freedom and people's strength in enjoying freedom. There is something that motivates us and compels us. Well, this topic that Jesus takes up here in John chapter 8, verses 31 through 59, in a spiritual sense, is the topic of freedom. What is freedom? How do you get freedom? How do you find freedom and what really is it? And the one big idea truth that he is going to continue to bang to us time and time again is simply this, that true freedom is available and found by abiding in Christ alone. That true freedom, it's available. And it is given to you. And it is found by abiding in Christ. And in Christ alone. Now, from my perspective, some things you need to know as we get into this text. I think this is a very difficult and complex text. And you may have a hint of that as we start to go through that. You just think, my gosh, there's a lot of things going on there. How does this work? Well, you need to know that's how I felt on Wednesday afternoon as well. You know, you read it and you just think, oh my gosh. And that's the challenge of expositional preaching. Because pastors don't get to just choose what they're going to do topically all the time. They're bound to the teaching series that they felt the Lord put on their heart to give. And so as I read this, my initial thoughts were, were panic. That was the initial thought of just, oh my gosh, what is this about? And then the secondary thought was, I wonder how busy Mark is this week. And because that, that's the joy of, of interns. You just this is so hard. This is an intern's job. And so that's the, that's the challenges of expositional preaching in this way. 
And yet I think it's also one of the joys of expositional preaching because it forces your pastor and it forces us as a church to really study God's word and sit under that word and allow that to dictate the topics. And 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching and correction and reproof so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So we need this text because this is the Saviour talking to us very specifically. But all that to say, you need to understand this, this text is complex. So if you are slightly tired, slightly fatigued, you need to try and change that really quick because you're going to have to really concentrate this morning. You're going to have to come with me on a journey. Otherwise, within about five minutes, you're going to be like, I have no idea what he's on. He is gone. So I need you with me. I need you concentrating. I need you thinking. And the way we're going to really attack this text then is by asking four questions of it. Four questions so that we can understand what is this true freedom and how can we discern that it truly is found in Christ and him alone. So here's question one, if you make your notes. Number one, why are these Jews so incensed about Jesus' talk of freedom? Why are these Jews so incensed about Jesus' talk of freedom? Because there is no doubt at all they are incensed. In fact, they are utterly fuming. They are utterly incensed. Some commentators say, yeah, they were really shocked. And you think, oh no, they weren't just shocked. They're incensed. I mean, picture the scene. In verse 30 we read, As he was saying these things, many believed in him. And so we automatically think, right, well, that's great. They appear to have become Christians. This is something to rejoice over. And then verse 31 happens where he says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, you know, the ones that we're thinking have become Christians, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And so you think, this is good. He's starting to talk to them about about freedom, about what it means to take him as Lord and Saviour. And in verse 32 he says, And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So he starts to engage with these people who have allegedly believed about the freedom of God, what it really means to be truly free. And the result from verse 33 through 59 is that all hell breaks loose in the temple. These guys who are allegedly believers are now utterly incensed, utterly incensed by what Jesus is saying. As throughout all the rest of the verses, we have this, this epic conversation going on between Jesus on the one hand and the Jews on the other. Jesus on the one hand is trying to help them see that, you know what? Outside of salvation, you're slaves to sin and you need to be freed. But the good news is I've come to free you. I, the light of the world, are the one that's going to help you. I'm going to break you free from sin and the consequences of sin. And so you need to take me as Lord. And he's talking to them about this. And really the crescendo comes in verse 58 where they're talking about Abraham and they're trying to slag Jesus off. And he says, you know what? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He doesn't say before Abraham was, I was. No, no, he's using the words ego emi. The whole premise of the great I am. So you remember when God speaks out the bush in the Old Testament and he says, who do I tell them that you are? Tell them that I am the I am. Jesus says here, before Abraham was, I am. He's claiming unequivocally to be God. He's helping them see that I'm God, I'm the Messiah, I'm the light of the world, I have come after you to free you. Well, if you're really a Christian, you're pretty excited about that, right? Because we hear that and we think, oh, yeah, thank you, Lord. This is incredible that you've, you've come to die for us so that we can be rescued, so that we can be truly freed. 
But that is not what happens here. Verse 41, they go toe-to-toe with Jesus and accuse him of being an illegitimate child. When they say to him in verse 41, we were not born of sexual immorality, what they're basically doing is saying, Jesus, we knew your mother. She wasn't married. So don't start talking to me about who your father is because you're clearly born illegitimately. So they start to slag him off about that. In verse 48, they accuse him of being a Samaritan. That's pretty bad when you're a Jew because Samaritans did not get on well with Jews. And so as far as these Jews were concerned, to call somebody a Samaritan would be very, very offensive. And then they continue, actually not even just a Samaritan, you're demon-possessed. That's what you are. And in verse 59 then, they crescendo after Jesus says, I am the I am, by picking up stones and rocks with the intent and aim to kill him. So, verse 30. Many believed in him. Oh, that's nice. Verse 59. They are picking up rocks to kill him. Why? That is quite a change. Why are they so incensed? Why has this change come about? Here's why. They are not Christians at all. We assume they are from verse 30. But what we actually discover very quickly is they are not. And so we read in verse 30, they believed, and we assume they must be Christians. Why? Because we assume that, you know what, all you have to do to become a Christian is believe. But that's a wrong understanding. Because James tells us that even the demons believed. Are they Christians? I think not. So, okay, well, what then is this belief? Theologically, keep with me. What is belief then of true salvation? What, what is it that Jesus is really talking about? For that, we need to go to Romans 10. So keep your finger in John 8. If you have a Bible, pull it back out again. And let's go to Romans chapter 10. Let me read it for you from verse 9 through to 13. Check this out. Paul speaking, he says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I love that text. It's one of my favorites. It talks to us about how salvation is open to all. So that anybody who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So whether you're a slave or free, Jew or Greek, man or woman, it doesn't make any difference. All those who put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior will indeed be saved. But he does then emphasize in verse 9 the way of salvation. How salvation is applied to us. How is it? Well, it is applied to us through active faith. That's what belief is. It's active faith. And so verse 9, you know what you you, you need to do to be saved? Well, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Paul is helping us see, listen, hang on. Even the demons believed, so let's not just think that we can mentally assent to, yeah, I get it, Jesus is God, that's really kind, like that. He's saying, hang on, you can't just believe, there has to be an active faith. So if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you really believe that Jesus is God and you take him as your Lord and your King. 
and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, i.e. that he truly is your saviour, that he died on the cross and then rose again and paid the penalty for all your sin. If you believe that he is the Lord of your life and he is the saviour of your life, then you will be saved. He's helping us see this process isn't just mental assent to, oh, that's great, yeah, Jesus is God, oh, I'm in. No. James would say faith without works is dead. He's helping us see true faith is saying, I take you as my king and I take you as my saviour. I truly believe in you. And so I bow the knee and my whole life is yours. He's helping us make the distinction between mere mental assent and active faith, saving faith. Now, back then to John chapter 8. And what you realise as you read John Romans 10 back into John chapter 8 is they are not Christians. Because in verse 31... Jesus says this, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. He's talking there about their need for a Lord, their need for a king. You need someone that is going to disciple you. You need someone who you can abide in, who you can hold to, who you can stick to as your king of kings and lord of lords. And the Jews are kicking off with this. They're like, hang on. Now, you know, Messiah, yeah, thanks for that. And leader, like that. And we would love it if you could help us kick out the Romans. That would be really handy. But bow the knee to you as king? Absolutely not. Because as far as they're concerned, you know, they're the children of God. They already have a great inheritance. And so they wanted Jesus, in a belief sense, as an add-on. They wanted him as an extension to their home. So look, we're already good to go. Our father's Abraham. But if you want to come on in and be our Messiah, sure. But Jesus says, no. No, no, no. If you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. You've got to take me as Lord. You've got to take me as king. Well, they don't want to do that. So they start kicking off. And in verse 33, uh, sorry, verse 32, he continues, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Here he's talking not only about their need for the Lord, but their need for a saviour. Because he's saying to them, you're not free. And they are kicking off at this big time. Because as far as they are concerned as Jews, this is offensive to say this. The tone of what he's saying, I mean, what they're effectively saying to him is it starts 33 where it says they answered him. What they're basically saying to Jesus is, hang on, do you know who we are? You're telling me that we're enslaved. Um, You know, taxi for one, please get this guy out. They are just so incensed of, we're not enslaved. Abraham is our father. We have a rich heritage. You know, God God is with us because we're the people of God. And so don't tell me that we need to be free from slavery. We've never been in slavery. Do you know who we are? We are the Jews. They are utterly deluded. Even now they are under Roman occupation. So physically speaking, they are in effect slaves. If you study their history, they've been enslaved many, many times. But they are still standing there nonetheless and going, do you know who we are? And they just think, you know what? We do not need to be freed from sin in our lives. Because effectively we don't have any because we're Jews. We're the people of God. We know how to keep the rules. We know how to do all these things. And so we know God will accept us just as we are. So, lordship, salvation, true active faith requires that we take Jesus as our Lord and Saviour. The Jews come on the scene and say, I don't need a Lord and I don't need a Saviour. So what's the conclusion? These Jews are not Christians at all. Yes, they've believed as in a mental ascent. But they don't believe, as in taking Jesus as Lord and Saviour. 
They don't think they need a king. They think they're fine as they are. And they certainly don't think they need a saviour because they think they are great as they are. They thought they were in, but they weren't in. Folks, here's the reality. I think there's a lot of people in Sydney like that today too. Do you believe Jesus is God? Sure. Have you taken him as your Lord and Saviour? No. What's that got to do with anything? I think there's a lot of people in Sydney like that. And so as you engage with people and talk to people, it's very similar to Wales as well, particularly in Welsh evangelicalism. And you engage with unbelievers who think they're believers and you say to them, hey, you know, I'm a Christian and do you believe in God? And they say, oh, yeah. Yeah, my dad was a warden in the Anglican Church for 40 years. And they go, oh, right. And so which church do you go to? And, oh, no, I, I don't go to church. And, but my dad was a warden for 40 years, so I'm looking forward to heaven. <laughs> you say to other people, you know, so where do you go? And they say, oh, yeah, you're, you're, Dave, you're a pastor. Right? Yeah, I'm a pastor. Oh, we're religious too. And you go, really, that's, that's interesting because I'm not that religious, but thanks for your comment. Uh, uh, what, what type of religion do you believe in? And, oh, we're Baptists or we're Methodists. Or we're Anglicans. And you're, really, which church do you go to? Oh, well, for weddings, we go to this one. And uh, Okay, well, uh, you know, as you accept the Bible and, and find yourself in a church and get knitted in, which one do you choose? Oh, we, we don't go to church. I mean, we're busy and a lot on and, and stuff to do. And So listen, would you consider yourself a Christian? And, oh, yeah, we're a Baptist, man. We're a Methodist. And we, we are so in. We're sorted. They're near. But my friends, in all reality, they're not in. Because to be in, you have to put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour. You have to bow the knee whereby he becomes your king. And you bow the knee realising, I am down the mine and I need a saviour. And so I take you as my Lord and Saviour. In all reality, friends, I think we need to be wise in our outreach and ensure that we not, as we engage with allegedly God-fearers, just rule them out as, oh, they're fine. Let's ask some more questions. Because sometimes people have even gone to church for years. We had, we had um, a couple at Christchurch called Yangi and Yamba, and they moved to Christchurch, they moved to, to Newport, they came at Starting Point, just like we did here. They've been to church for many years. And as soon as they came through Starting Point, by week three, their faces dropped as they realised, we have been to church for decades we're not Christians. This is so different. I have to take Jesus as my Lord and he's truly my saviour. I just thought like, you know, we helped out with the coffees and stuff. And oh, mate, So different to that. We need to reach people and seek to win people. And even where they're religious people, if they put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and saviour, that's fantastic. Leave them alone. Rejoice with them as brothers and sisters. But if they haven't, they're fair game because we need to reach them. That's why Jesus is going after these guys right here. He's going after the Jews because even though they think they're in, they are not. So question two. What is true freedom and where is it found? So we've established that these Jews aren't actually believers and that certainly puts a change in the complexion of the way, the way this pans out. It helps us understand what's going on. We've already established that they're not Believers, but now we need to understand as a backdrop then, well, what is then this freedom that Jesus is talking about and where is it found? And I put those two questions together because Jesus puts them together here, so it'll all make sense in a moment. So what is it and where is it found? You see, in life, just to give us some background, in life, 
a society, as I've thought about this, this this week, I think it's very common to think of freedom as being set free from something. Full stop. Don't we? We think of, you know, freedom, true freedom, is I'm, I'm just set free. Free as a bird. And so off, off we go. And so we think of, so if you interview somebody in the street and say, what do you think of as true freedom? I think if you interviewed a teenager, they'd say, oh, I'll tell you what true freedom is. When I'm 18 and I leave home, that's what true freedom is because I'll go to university and I'm off and I'll be free. I won't have my mum saying, what time are you coming in tonight? And I won't care because I'll be out. I'll be able to do my thing. And so they think of true freedom as just being, you know, well, for years I've had my mum and dad kind of looking on for me and I'll just be free. Or your boss. So everybody thinks, I cannot wait for the holidays. Oh, why is that? Because I will be free from the tyranny of my boss, because I don't want to have to do all the work. I don't want to have to sit under his leadership. I I just want to be free to do what I want. Or we think as a student, maybe, well, freedom is when my exams finish. And I remember that moment myself on numerous occasions exams where you walk out of the final exam. (laughs) Isn't that just one of the best feelings in the world? I mean, you just walk out of the final exam and you think, I'm free, no more study. And then you eventually realize, but I'm going back next year. But, but for that moment, you just feel like you're so free. And I think society thinks of freedom like that. It thinks of it as we're under kind of oppression and then I just need to be set free to do what I want to do. But when it comes to spiritual freedom, what Jesus is saying here is that, is that that presupposition, that we're just free to do what we want, that we're indeed set free to that end, is only half right. So in fact, yes, we are set free. Part of spiritual freedom, the first part of the coin, is that we are set free from something. We're set free from the power and penalty of sin. So in all reality, we are indeed down the mine. And Jesus comes after us and releases us from the mine, releasing us from the power and penalty of sin. So yes, no doubt, you are set free from that. But don't think you just come to the surface then in your yellow cage and just live as you want. No, you're not only set free from something... True freedom is also being set free to something else. What's that? What are we set free to? Well, we are set free to the authority and lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what he says in verse 36. Look, he says, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. We read that and think, Oh, fantastic, I'll be saved. I'll be removed from the power and penalty of sin and I can just live how I want. Nope. Verse 31, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. About lordship. So yes, indeed, you are set free. You are pulled up out of the mind. And as soon as you get to the surface, he says, that is great. You now live under my lordship and my authority. And in that, there will be true freedom from you. You're not just set free from something. You're set free to something else. And I think in reality, in society, and sometimes in our lives too, that can be a difficult concept to follow and a difficult concept to swallow because in all reality that is so different to what society thinks about true freedom see here's the proposition keep staying with me i think society thinks this that true freedom is having no master but yourself everybody wants that i want to be free from my parents why so that i can be my own boss I want to be free from my employment. Why? So I can be self-employed because I want to be my own boss. 
I want to be free from my exams. Why is that? So I can please myself. So I can hang out and get out of bed at 12 and go to bed like at 4 in the morning. I just want to do whatever I want to do. True freedom in our society, the idea is that we have no master but ourselves. And I think when people understand then the lordship of Jesus, this can be difficult to swallow because you think, well, hang on. So didn't Jesus say that if you love me, you'll obey my commands? Right? So you're saying if I become a Christian, I've got to obey his commands? That sounds a little restrictive for me. So I'll be all right. Because true freedom in my book is that I'll just be set free. I don't, I don't want to be set free to, to that. That sounds like a tyranny. That sounds like I've got to live for somebody else. I don't want that. I'm just going to take the freedom that I've got and I'm going to do my own thing. Now, in this regard, society gets the situational realities of freedom absolutely wrong. And Satan looks on and deceives society and deceives us all into thinking, yeah, why do you want him as Lord? You're free now. Just do your thing. It'll be much better doing your thing. And Christian freedom then, I think, can be so often misunderstood and misrepresented. I thank God then for verses 34 and 36. Because it's in these verses where Jesus takes a giant pin and pops the myth, which is the bubble that says, true freedom is having no master but yourself. He offends them in the process. But what profound words. Look look at this. It is just amazing. Let's look at verse 34. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. You know, these guys, what he's effectively saying to them is, you know what, Jews? And if he was here today, I think he'd be saying, you know what, Sydney? So Jews, Sydney, society where you think that you're truly free? Are you sure about that? You think you're free to just do what you want all of the time? Here's what the truth is. I am God and here's my declaration. You're not free at all. You're a slave to sin. You are a slave to sin, a slave to the consequences of sin, and the father of lies is your master. And so you think, I don't want to choose God as my Lord and Savior because that just sounds restrictive. I'll tell you what the truth is. You're already living restrictive. You're a slave to sin. And the devil is your master. That is then echoed in Colossians 2 verse 13. Paul says, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Christ. John chapter 12, he's saying, you know what? The ruler of the world, meaning Satan, is over all those who are dead in their transgressions and sins. And what he's saying to the Jews is, that's you. You're dead in your transgressions and sins. You're a slave to sin. You cannot help but sin. You are down the mine. You think you're free? What are you free to do in a mine? You, you think you're free, but it's a myth. It's a deception. You are a slave to your sin. It's echoed then again. In Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3, it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, father of lies, Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we all once lived, every one of us in this room, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, and the mind, and while by nature then, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, you think 
That true freedom is just doing your own thing. Well, listen, I'm God. I made you. And you need to know there is two options here, an A and a B. You're choosing C. C is, I'll just do my own thing. What I need you to see is C doesn't exist. You're either mastered by Satan and you live in his kingdom or you're mastered by me and you live in my kingdom. You're either a slave to sin or a son. They don't want that. They're utterly offended. And our society comes aboard and goes, I'll give them both a miss. I'll just live for myself. And Jesus is saying, in the kingdom, no one can truly do that. You're either down the mine and live under his mastery or you're out of the mine and you live under my lordship. But there is no other option. You think you're free, Jews? You think you're free, Sydney? You're not free at all. You're in bondage. You're a slave to sin. Freely following the power of the air. It's what the Bible calls total, total depravity on occasions. It doesn't mean that everybody just goes around as an unbeliever sinning all the time because there's common grace. That would be utter depravity. It's common grace. But total depravity is still none the sense of I'm just down the mine and I'm living down the mine. But I'm free. No, you're not. You're down the mine. But no one tells me what to do. Oh, it does. Your sinful flesh does. The father of lies does. I've never heard him. No, but you're tempted by him all the time. And you just can't even see it. Jesus is graciously appealing to them that in all reality they're not free at all. And yet he's also appealing to them that in all reality they can have freedom in him. And that really does put a different complexion on things, doesn't it? The issue then is not the fact that true freedom is having no master. Jesus is saying that's not even an option. The issue is that true freedom is having the right master, the right king. Theologian, Bob Dylan, says everybody must serve somebody. He's right. Everybody. You either serve Satan or you serve Jesus. I don't want to do either. I want to serve myself. Oh, that's Satan then. Because he's the father of lies. And that's the way he makes you feel all the time. So then what is, question three, what then does this true freedom look like that Jesus brings? What does it actually look like? And I think this is just beautiful to see. Two things. The first thing it looks like is justification. Read verse 34 again. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. What he's implying there is, you know what? If you put your faith in me as Lord and Savior, you will be justified. You will be removed from the kingdom of darkness. You will be pulled and set free from the power and penalty of sin. I will rescue you in my blood. I will pull you free from the kingdom that you are in and I will pull you to the surface. That's what justification is all about. Being completely forgiven of your sin, being justified by Christ and Him alone. And that is truly great. But there's a greater. There's a great and there's a greater. And the greater is then talked about in verse 35. It's easy to miss. I want to draw it to your attention then. He says, The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And so there's a great and a greater? Yes, there is. 
See, these guys would have understood slavery very well. They would have been well acquainted with slavery because it was very common and very understood. And the point of being a slave is as a slave, you would never really feel secure because you would consistently be trying to earn the master's approval. And you consistently knew that if you failed in your role or you got sick or you got too expensive, the master would either just throw you out or go sell you to somebody else. And so you never lived secure. But if you were a son, well, as a son, you would always be secure. Because a son, you have a relationship with the master. You have a relationship with the father. You carry the family name. You carry the family inheritance. You live in the family home. Here's then the point. What does this freedom look like? Well, it looks like justification. It looks like being removed from the mind and being forgiven of our sin. That indeed is great, but there's a greater. Because the second thing it looks like is adoption. Freed from slavery to become sons, to become children. And so justification, I think, should amaze us But I think adoption, when we understand the freedom of God, that should overwhelm us. And I'd have to say for me, as I've studied this this week at different times, I've been overwhelmed. Dr. J.R. Packer says it this way. He says, For it is here in adoption that we encounter the deepest insight into the greatness of God's love. Justification by which we mean God's forgiveness of the past, together with his acceptance of us in the future, is the primary and fundamental blessing of the gospel. And that is not in question. Justification is the primary blessing because it meets our primary spiritual need. We all stand, by nature, under God's judgment. His law condemns us. Guilt gnaws at us, making us restless and miserable, and in our own lucid moments, afraid. We have no peace in ourselves because we have no peace with our Maker. So we need the forgiveness of our sins and assurance of a restored relationship with God more than we need anything else in the world. And this is what the gospel offers us before it offers us anything else. But contrast this now with adoption. Adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us as his children and heirs. Listen, closeness, affection and generosity are at the heart of this relationship. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater still. Friends, I think he's right. To be right with God the judge is a great thing. To know that you have been removed from the mind, that you've been pulled forth, that you've been set free, that the chains that you've been in have been broken, that the power and penalty of sin no longer resides over your life in any shape or form because you've been completely forgiven and restored. That's a great thing. But adoption is even greater because adoption says, you know what, you're not only right with God the judge, but you're brought into a relationship through adoption with a master who is your father, who cares for you with graciousness, with generosity, with love, with big-heartedness. So there's a great, 
there's also a greater still. And so is Christianity then just a mere dry adherence to rules and commands in hope that maybe we'll do enough to earn God's approval? Or is Christianity just a restrictive straitjacket where you think, oh, I don't think I'd want that. It just sounds so restrictive on my life. I don't think I'd be able to be free. I don't think I'd be able to be myself. Absolutely not. Christianity entered into through faith in Jesus as your Lord and Saviour is the participation and enjoyment of the greatest freedom you could ever imagine. True freedom. As you realise, I'm not only removed from the mind, but my master is my father. The one who made me. The one who knitted me together in my mother's womb. The, no, the one who knows my thoughts by, before I even think them. The one who knows my challenges. The one who knows my beginning from my end. The one who is completely outside myself and loved me enough to send his only son to die in my place. Accepting Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior is all about coming into a relationship with God my Father. And knowing his gracious and compassionate character, does that sound restrictive to you? It sounds like freedom to me. To know that he cares for me and hems me in both behind and before. To know that he says, you know what, son? This is how it's going to go well for you. This isn't primarily for me. This isn't primarily so that I can think great about myself. This is primarily so I can care for you. Because there are things that you shouldn't do in your life because they will hurt you. And there are things that you should do in your life because they will benefit you. I want your best. I love you. I am your father. Is that restrictive? I think not. Christianity is the greatest freedom you will ever find. And I think when you realize it's not only justification but adoption, when we realize that, I think we will want then for nothing else. And we'll be overwhelmed to realize he's my father. And he cares. And graciousness and generosity and affection and closeness then really do mark that relationship. So how should we respond? Question four, in closing. How should we respond to these truths? Well, listen, if you're not a Christian, I think the way the Bible calls you to respond is by allowing this truth to set you free. Because that is why it is written. All these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that you may take him as your Lord and Saviour, and that in doing that you may have life in his name. The Bible is clear that God made you and he made you as his child to spend perfect unity with him, to find joy in him and acceptance in him and purpose in him. That's what he made you for. But you, like me, rejected that and as a result from that, you're down the mine and you're stuffed. Our sin, your sin, has cut you off from God the Father. He is holy, you are not, and he can have nothing to do with you. And yet in grace he sent his son, Jesus Christ, on the greatest rescue mission you've ever seen. It started at Christmas with him in the great carnation being born into the squalor of a barred stable. It ended at Easter where he died for your sins, helping you see that whoever believes in me may have life and that in abundance because on the cross I will be your substitute. I will effect on the cross go down the mine for you. And when I rise again, I will bring you with me. I will take the wrath of God in your place and I will make acceptance and joy and life then possible for you. How do I walk in that? Well, take me as your Lord and Saviour. Truly believe. Truly believe. Make me your King and make me your Saviour 
and you'll be saved. Friends, if you're not a Christian, allow this truth to set you free because this is freedom. You may have been deceived by the father of lies for years, if not decades. It's a lie. But true freedom, that which you desire, is absolutely true. And it's available and possible through Christ and him alone. Folks, if you are a Christian, though, which is many of you here today, how how are you meant to apply it? Here's how. By allowing this freedom to fuel your life. We'll look at this more next week in more detail as we look at John chapter 9. But here's the issue. You, Sovereign Grace Church, you have been set completely and utterly free. You've been set free. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I'm completely free. That is your story. That is who you are, Sovereign Grace. That's the people that you are. You have been completely set free. And so I urge you and exhort you with every breath in my body, live in the good of it. Because you're free. And so when Satan tempts you to despair and tells you of the guilt within and says, you know what? You should be condemned about this. Upward you must look and see him there, the one who made an end of all your sin. He died for you. Your sin is gone. So don't be deceived by the evil one. Your consequences of your sin and the penalty of it has been completely dealt with by Jesus Christ on the cross. So there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When Satan tempts you into the lie that, you know what, you'll never change. I've known you years. You're never going to change. You'll never move on. You'll always be anxious about everything. You'll always be proud about everything. When he tempts you with the lies that you will never change, upward you look and see him there. The one who took the chain that you had between yourself and sin and snapped it in two. That's where you look. What are you chained to? Only deception. Does that mean you never sin? No, I do. Like the Apostle Paul, I'm aware in my own life that I can be tempted to do things that I don't want to do and I don't do the things I do want to do. And It all gets very messy. But here's the thing. Sin no longer has dominion over you. You're no longer just chained to it. So when Satan says, you'll never change, you can look back and say, but I have a Father and a Savior and the Spirit residing in me that I know will help me. And he'll never give up. In fact, he'll stick with me until the day of completion on the day when he returns. And when Satan tempts you to despair and to think in, you're alone and you always will be. You go through trials, you go through them by yourself. No one's listening. No one cares. God's a mi- just a mirage. Upward you look and you see him there and you realize he's my father. I've not just been set free, but I have a father who cares for me with compassion and grace and generosity and who says, I will never let you go. I will hem you in both behind and before. And so from life's first cry to final breath, I will command your destiny and I will never leave you nor forsake you because I'm your father and I forsook my son so that I would never forsake you. My friends, you're free. And so live in the good of it. You know, just this week, I was reminded of a part in Steve Farrow's book, of Finishing Strong, where he tells this story of how they train circus elephants. 
And it's quite a strange story, but it's always stuck in my mind because, you see, what they do with circus elephants is when a circus elephant is a baby, maybe two or three hundred pounds, they put a shackle around that elephant's leg. It doesn't weigh that much. And then they put a 10-pound stake into the ground and they put a chain between the stake and the elephant and the elephant tries for weeks to try and pull away. But it can't. because It's just not strong enough. Well, that elephant continues to have that shackle around its leg throughout its whole life. And then when they're an adult and they weigh two tons, in reality, they could break that chain in an absolute moment at any time. A two-ton elephant elephant is not put off by a 10-pound stake in the ground. It could rip that stake and most of the ground with it if it wanted to, but it thinks it can't. So it never tries. An elephant never forgets. And so it remembers the time when it was a child and it stayed in the ground and so it couldn't get free. And so it never tries. But in reality, if it tried, it would be free in a moment. Brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian... Jesus Christ has broken the chains on your life. You've been set free. So don't believe a lie. You are free. Completely and utterly free. So live in the good of it. Forgiven. Justified. Heaven is your home. Adopted. You're free. So let's make him our song. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for truth. And Lord, I do thank you that even when truth is complex, you give us grace for the complexities. And you give us eyes to see and ears to hear your words. And Lord, I thank you that freedom is real. Freedom is tangible. The very thing that our hearts desire to be free is available to us through your Son. Lord, would we never then stop saying thank you? Would we never stop being amazed at what you've done? Would we never stop being overwhelmed? Because we're not only justified, we're adopted to a position that will never change, always secure. So in you there is true freedom and in you then may we enjoy life in that in abundance. In Jesus' name, amen.